How do you how do you address a warrant officer, sir? A warrant officer is uh, well a CW one you call Mister, CW two, three, four, and five you call Chief. So you're a chief. And I was a C I was a CW two, so they called they called me Chief. I'll tell an amusing story, which is that when I graduated from the Marine Corps, I mean, graduated boot camp, the the drill instructors all hated me because of my face. Like I, they they said I, they said you know any time they gave me an order, any time anybody talked to me, or just in general, I walked around with this face that made everyone think that I was better than they were. I didn't realize I was doing it, but I mean. It's fair. Fair. I did think I was better than everyone, and uh, the uh, a- a- they all hated me. And uh, at the end of the at the end of boot camp, they said, uh, "Now, anyone who's got a, a family member who is coming to graduation who is an officer, you need to let us know." Uh, and so that's all they said. Write it down on a piece of paper. And I, well, you know, my dad, my dad was coming. You were coming to watch me graduate so I wrote down on the paper you know chief warrant officer and uh, they got back to me the next week and said uh, we're sorry your your uh, your father is not important enough to rate special seating <laughs> I, said, I, didn't even, I didn't even know that's what I was doing <laughs> you you told me to write down any officer who was coming so that's what I did but I could tell that I could tell the glee, the pleasure that my uh, drill instructor had in delivering the message to me that my my dad didn't rate special seating at graduation. That's cruel, cruel. When I showed up for graduation, I went to see about getting some housing on base, uh-huh. and the inn was full. I was standing behind a uh, a three or four other people. And we all heard the the person say that the inn was full. There was no more rooms. They, we would have to go out into town. So the three in front of me left, and I walked up to the to the uh, counter, and I said, I heard that the inn was full. Do you have anything in the BOQ, which is uh, Bachelor's Officer's Quarter? And... They said, oh, are you an officer? And I showed them my ID. Yeah, we got a room for you. And so your mom and I got to stay there on base. Oh, uh, well, see. I, I hope my drill instructor hears this. Not, but that was... I, I, I dearly hope that my drill instructor <laughs> hears this. Never going to happen, but... Uh, but how is it? I mean, so a warrant officer, so my... my uh, because because so my my brother is uh sort of senior enlisted uh in the navy and um he uh has talked about maybe going the warrant officer path but is it is it the same i mean like so you you have a commission like what's the distinction um with kind of that traditional um officer class oh you're not commissioned you're warranted what is the difference? I, I couldn't tell you there. Well, do you have to? There's a difference in schooling, Congress right? Congress warns you. Yeah, you got to go to school. It, it there is a difference in the schooling that you go to, and you 
to become a warrant officer. Well, you, at least you in have the Navy, the way it was described to me in the Navy is um, a warrant officer is someone who knows uh, one thing really, really well. So on deployment, it right. almost never comes up. And then the one time that it does, they come out, they fix it, and then they go back to playing video games the rest of the time at sea. Uh, something like that, yeah. It's a, it's a specialist uh, in any one thing. You have to be in your field at least five years before you can apply for one officer school. So you have to know something about the field you're applying for. And yours was counterintelligence, right? Correct. What's counterintelligence? What is counterintelligence? Uh, our job, there, there is HUMINT, which is human intelligence. That's what I did. You go out and actually talk to people and gather information from living humans. There's SIGINT, which is signal intelligence. These are people who intercept telephone calls or radio calls or uh, text messages or any kind of signal and gather information from the signals. So there's different kinds of uh, intelligence gathering, and each of us have our own specialty. Mine was human, which is human intelligence. Well, and then I have a question for you. I remember I can remember you telling me stories about your uh, training. So, like, you know, you you'd go for your, what is it, one weekend a month or something like that. I can remember you saying that you, you used to uh, do training with your guys, like walking – walking through moles and just tracking um, random people like you'd pick some mark and track them around am I am, am I insane in remembering this or is this something you remember uh, talking about it's it's it was close to that we couldn't we could not follow just any random mark because uh, we we couldn't we couldn't get practice spooked. our our uh, our craft on unsuspecting civilians that was against the rules so that's unfortunate was, well, yeah a mark was picked for us from among the battalion people and uh they would take off to the mall or to some specific place and then we would have to go follow him or her and we would write up our reports and whatnot, and then at the end of the day, there would be a uh, after-action report, and the mark would uh, let us know who had been burned, uh, when and where they saw them, how they uh, figured out who the, who was following them, and things like that, so that we would uh, get better at what we were doing. So they they yeah, give you whatever the the tell was, or how they they figured out who was following them, and then you. Try to, try to not do that next time. Try to not to get caught. How how early? So so how long had you been in uh, uh, counterintelligence? Because we um, we had a conversation earlier, and, but you you did end up in um, Afghanistan. Yes. So was was this in the run up to that, or had you been in counterintelligence for a while before? I uh, started in Intel in 1984. Prior to that, I was in, in electronics, 
I was a ground support electrician when I first went into the Marine Corps back in 1971. And uh, I was with the 1st Harrier Squadron in the United States uh, in Buford, South Carolina. And I was ground Those support. The, that's for the, the vertical, right. the vertical takeoff. Correct. That's the Vistal. The vertical. Vistal. What's that stand for? Vertical, and short takeoff and landing. They're called Vistal craft. And uh, so I was there. I was active duty Marine Corps for four, four years. Then I uh, did the same job in the Navy for two years. Then I got out. I was out of the military for seven years. You got to tell them why you got out of the Navy, Dad. That's that's important. <laughs> uh, I always say that I got out of the Navy because I never could figure out who to salute. Everybody wore gold. You know, I had the same problem. Gold, or, yeah. The officers wore gold, so I was always getting chewed out for saluting or not saluting. I had the exact same thing, and and remember that every time. I I can remember uh, saluting a fellow from, I don't know, 20 yards out or something like that. And then as soon as he got up close to me, I'd have to listen to him yell at me for a minute, you know, about how he worked for a living. Yeah, NCOs love that joke. It's uh, probably been around for a long, long time. But it's real, very real. But don't they uh, also um, salute indoors or something ridiculous? Or is it that they don't? I can never remember. The Navy? I, yeah. I, I really couldn't tell you. I don't. I never did get it right. I got out of the Navy <laughs> as quick as I could because I was always getting in trouble for saluting or not saluting. So why didn't why didn't you but you never spent any time in the in the Air Force. You didn't want to collect collect them all. Uh, I I wasn't opposed to it. I just it, it just never worked out that way. Um, but you did you did the Navy, Marines and Army. You didn't do the, Army, the Coast Guard either, the did you? National Guard. Yeah. The National yeah, Guard. Okay. I, yeah. I got into the Army Reserves in 1984 and uh, got into to counterintelligence in 1985, um, and I did that through someone that I was working with in the post office. I worked for the post office for 28 years, so I was working with a fellow in the post office who was the first sergeant of an intel uh, battalion, and I got to talking to him about how unhappy I was with where I was and that I was probably going to get out of the uh, Army Reserve because I just... Well... You're still there, aren't you, Andy? Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, oh, here I am here. All right, he's back. Looks like... Can you hear Where's me? You? Yeah. Can what what's what's this beautiful firearm behind you? This one? Yeah. This this was uh belonged to Joshua when he was a kid. It's a Oh that's a my red BB rider. Gun. BB gun. Oh nice. 
Uh, yeah. I think I bought that for him when he was about six years old. Oh man, you can take out a take out a marmot with that, or I did kill with some birds gun? with that. Uh, probably yeah. not. I took out some. Used to, I, mean, I took out some birds. You can spook a rabbit, and that's about it. Yeah. Uh, Dad always told me never to shoot anything that you can't eat, and I can remember, or that you're not gonna eat. That was that was the rule, and uh, I, I took that to heart. But I saw a bird sitting in a tree and thought I had never shot anything before, and I thought there's no way I'm gonna hit it, so I'll just you know shoot at it. But apparently the practice had paid off, and I killed that bird. Dad came over, and was not angry, but a bit disappointed in me. And I was, uh, I was kind of chagrined as well because I didn't, I didn't think I was going to hit it, but I did. There you go. There's that. First did time I killed an animal. No, nah, I didn't make me eat it. Maybe throw it in the garbage. It was uh, not an edible uh, bird. Pretty, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, anything's edible. The, um, like a friend of mine, <laughs> he, true, he killed a beaver. And so his, um, so his parents made him, I don't know what, like, um, this would have been up in the Adirondacks and the, uh, the parents found some like French Canadian, you know, Métis, uh, recipe for beaver, um, and beaver tail uh, and he had to eat it. No, I'd do that. Yeah. I need to, I, I reckon I'd try beaver, uh, I mean, it's a glorified rat, I suppose, I, but still. I've not we, yet we ate. had beaver, but I would try it. Dad, ate, Dad ate a rat before. Squirrel's good. Yeah. Dad, uh, rat is probably beaver. not good. <laughs> no, well, he had guinea pig and in, in, he had cooey in uh, South America. Yeah. No. What, what, what in, right. in, in Afghanistan, what was, um, wait, 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 wait. in Afghanistan, we get, were you we, eating like the hall the hall we got to get back to the, the 1984, like, um, Sodexo. <laughs> okay. Got to get back. To I'm just curious if it was, yeah. Well, where, Go where he fell off the recording. Sorry, we'll get there. But in right. 1984, you were talking about that's when you started your. Uh, right, until in 1984, I uh, I was talking to the first sergeant of an intel unit, and who worked with me at the post office, and he talked me into coming up and talking to his commanding officer, who liked me and recruited me right there on the spot, and I start so I started my uh, my schooling. I believe in 1985 and uh, fortunately I got to take the wife and kids with me while I went to school in San Antonio, Texas at, at Fort Houston. They got a uh, nice vacation on the government at the La Quinta Inn and yeah. every day when I'd get off from school we'd all go out and do something together. And they played in the pool the rest of the time. I remember when you went to Warren then Officer. In, uh, Warren Officer Candidacy School. Where was that? Nine, when or where? That was in 96. Oh, okay. In, uh, it was in Alabama. 
Fort McClellan. No, that's not, I don't think that's right. Huachuca. Does that sound no. familiar? Fort Huachuca. No, Huachuca is Arizona. Well, okay, what'd that's you do That's in there? Arizona. But you went to Fort Huachuca. Uh, I went to school. I went to a school out there in Fort Huachuca one, one year. Okay. I went. During my two-week um, active duty every year during the summer, I would go to a school someplace. I went to Brigham Young three times, three different um, schoolings. I went up to Maryland one time to Fort Meade. I went to uh, to Fort Sam Houston twice. But every every year they'd send me somewhere. Fort, Fort Huachuca I went several times because there was a big signal, signal intelligence school out there. And uh, so every year I went somewhere. Then in 90, what was it, 91, 92, first Gulf War, 92? Yeah. I think it was. Uh, the Everybody left from, uh, let's see, Fort Benning's, Georgia. What's the one up in North Carolina where the 101st Airborne is? The School of the Americas. Uh, 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 what is that? It's Fort um, something. Anyway, I was sent up to, to North Carolina to backfill all the people that went to Desert Storm in 92. So I never got to go in 92. But then in 2003, when we invaded uh, Iraq for the second time, I was called up and sent to Kuwait City. And our job was going to, you know, the first in the first Gulf War, there were thousands and thousands of POWs. There were so many POWs that we couldn't keep track of all of them. There weren't enough people over there to keep track of them. So they sent us over there this time to follow the uh, 3rd Infantry Division into Iraq. And our job was going to be to set up POW camps behind the 3rd ID and interrogate, interrogate the prisoners as they were captured. Um, but in the second Gulf War, Saddam Hussein gave out the order that anyone who surrendered, their entire family was going to be annihilated. So nobody surrendered in the second Gulf War, or very few. And the war was over so fast that I never even got out of Kuwait City. Well, the war's over. Got National Guard sitting in Kuwait, and the brass looked around and said, well, what do we do with them? And in their wisdom, they decided they would send us to Afghanistan to relieve the active Army personnel who were there and had been there for a year. So that's what happened. We packed up and went to Afghanistan and relieved the active duty folks that were there so that they could come home for a year. And the same folks that we relieved, relieved us a year later. So that was their, their second time. For some of them, their third time. And uh, But for the National Guard, we just went one time and we were done. 
And this is this is uh, 2000, 2003? Correct. February of 2003, February the 7th, we were called up and sent to uh, Fort Stewart in South Georgia. And then uh, we got all of our shots and all of our records straight and all of the paperwork done. And then they put us on a plane and we went to Kuwait. We were there about a. And now I get to ask. I now I get to ask my question. Okay. When we were talking about Beaver, but when you were in Afghanistan, because um, Iraq, it was all kind of catered by Halliburton um, and everything. But the uh, what did you eat? What was the weird stuff you had to eat there? In Afghanistan, as long yeah. as I was on base, we were eating the same thing as the as the folks in Kuwait uh, every Wednesday. We, we got lobster from South Texas and uh, steak and lobster every Wednesday night. So we knew that another week had gone by every time we ate lobster. And uh, we only had to eat lobster 52 times and we could go home. <laughs> I know it's a tough gig, but some of us got to do it, you know. Uh, but the weird stuff I ate was when I went out. Did it have out, to be halal? Did, did they have... Um, did, did they have pork? Uh, on the base, we we did yes. Okay. When when I went to like dinners and lunches uh, that were prepared by the locals, I would go to people's homes. I would go to like I said, my job was to talk to people and gather intelligence. So in order to do that, I had to go out into the city, countryside, and talk to the people. Now, I was, I had a, a beard. My hair was down to my shoulders, uh, as was my team's. And we had two Land Rovers. And there was, the team consisted of uh, uh, six of us plus two uh, interpreters. The interpreters were U.S. citizens uh, from Virginia, but they were Afghan Americans. So we would get into our Land Rovers and take off into the, into the countryside and pull into little towns here and there and ask where the mayor or the el elders elder was or the chief of police or some some body that was an elder in the town and when we'd find that person we would ask him what he needed do you need a, a clinic or do you need a well or do you need a school what is it you need well when they found out that we were there to give them something then they invited us to dinner and we would sit around discussing their problems and and uh, I'd talk to them and we'd try to find out where the bad guys were moving around and what the bad guys were doing in this sector and where their caches of, of, uh, of weapons were and things like that. But we would go, to answer your question, we would go and eat with them and uh, we would sit on a floor around a rug, and the uh, rug would usually have a piece of plastic over it. And on the plastic, they would put 
plates of uh, oxtail or plates of rice and plates of fruit and plates of all kinds of stuff like that. <clears throat> and then we'd sit around and eat with our hands. There were no utensils. Uh, they you break off a piece of bread, and then you would use the bread to pick up the meat out of the meat um, bowl, and then you'd break off another piece and get you some rice. Uh, you grab a handful of rice and squeeze it until the olive oil run down your arm and squeeze it into a ball, and then you'd pop that ball of rice into your mouth and eat it. Um, there, there wasn't a lot of weird things, but I'll tell you what the my biggest problem with eating there was. We were going through town one day, and you... Uh, know what a um, spiced ham looks like right they, they've got the, the the ham shank that's covered with all kinds of spices and salts and peppers and you know what I'm talking about yeah they hang it hang it up to dry oh, yeah. is that what you're saying well yeah they they hang it up out in public they yeah. hang it up it, yeah. it, uh, up underneath a the, the eaves of, of their shop. And uh, we used to get them in North Georgia all the time. But the first time I stopped, I saw one of those, and I thought this would be great to take back and, you know, just slice it off for ham sandwiches. So I got out of the vehicle, and I walked over to the butcher shop there where they were hanging, and I said, I want one of those, and I pointed at at one of the ham shanks and when I pointed at it flies went everywhere so it wasn't spices that I was looking at it was a solid mass of flies well <laughs> needless to say I did not buy it but I did realize that that yeah. is what they were feeding us at all of these lunches so I uh I kind of lost my appetite for these lunches that we've been going to. It wasn't. It wouldn't have been um, ham though. What, I mean, the maggots are just extra protein, right? You got it. Yeah. I'm sorry, y'all talked over Goat, each other. Probably. I, I don't know what y'all are saying. You're protein. talking over each other. It it wasn't ham. It, it wasn't ham, right? It was just. It was some mystery meat. It was a a a, a hawk of some sort. It might have been lamb shank. It might have been uh, beef, but it it was the the um, the butt or the the ham the yeah rear leg anyway of something. And I just thought it was a ham when I saw it. Um, they didn't have a lot of refrigeration for this for for their meat. So they would, they would butcher it right there in the street, right in front of the, their shop, hang it up, and then people would buy it before the end of the day so, uh, and take it home, cook it, because uh, they didn't have any refrigeration. Farm to table. It, it was a real third world country. The, um, 
Yeah. Would these village would they have a a, a jet like a diesel generator or anything? Uh, talking about the the diesel generator, I was in Ghazni, which is a town probably 35, 40 miles south of Kabul. Most of my time I was spent in Kabul. But Ghazni, I was down there for the last two months of my tour. And every night uh, you could go out into the compound and you'd be, you could look across the wall and see the city. And you could tell who the rich people were by the lights because there would be a you might you might see in the whole town you might see a dozen lights and they were run by generators in each one of the the compounds it was one of the darkest places i ever been was ghazni afghanistan you stand out there and see stars that you'd never seen before because there was no light pollution um in Kabul, there was a electrical grid, but it was not very, um, it, it didn't always work, not very reliable. Uh, so they, a lot of the stores had backup generators just for that, just for when the electricity went out. Did that answer your question? Um, so at the Gaza, did you ever get to the um, the Khyber arms markets? They, um, I'm, I've never heard anything called that. I went to a lot of arms dealers looking for um, the British uh, Springfield rifles. When we, when I first got there, the uh, well, first of all, for your audience, a little history. Back in the late 1800s, uh, back when all of that area was a colony of the British, the British left Kabul with a thousand, I mean, with a hundred thousand uh, men, women, children, camp followers, whatnot. And they were leaving Afghanistan while being harassed by uh, the Afghan guerrillas. And only one person made it through the Khyber Pass. He was a doctor. I don't remember his name. But all of that uh, armament, all of the, the equipment that the British Army had in Afghanistan stayed in Afghanistan. So there was a lot of, uh, like, Mine is an, the rifle that I got was an 1853 uh, Enfield. And uh, the, when I first got there, they were selling for about $50 a piece. But uh, when an American soldier would run across one of them, they would ask the Afghan how much he wanted for it. The Afghan would think a minute and say, well, I want $50. And the, the American never hesitated. All right, here's $50, I'll take it. Well, the Afghan then thought, well, that was much too easy. So the next one, next time, he said, that'll be $100. And the American said, well, great, here's $100, I'll take it. And this went on until when I got there, 
uh, I got mine for $200. By the time I left there, they were going for $1,000. Uh, but there was fewer and fewer pristine examples of the uh, British infield left because most of the infields that, that the uh, Afghan they customized. They put uh, all kinds of nails and, and um, they, they would nail nails into the stock in designs and they would uh, they would take the sights or they would break the sights off really and then just weld yeah, I mean accidentally break them off not on purpose but when they accidentally broke one off they would just weld uh, a homemade sight onto it and that was you know of course made the uh, the white the rifle not worth near nearly as much but I was a I was fortunate I found a infield 1853 infield that had the original sights had not been customized at all. It's, it does have a few uh, British markings on it where the armorers had done something to it and they had to put their mark on it to let people know that they had done something. Uh, but other than that, it's, uh, it's, it's pristine. The uh, Afghans were still using them. It's a, a breech. The Afghans were still using them against the. Is it a breech loading rifle Russians or muzzle loading? It, it's a muzzle loader, uh, cap and ball. But the Afghans were still using them against the Russians when they invaded in the nineteen, what nineteen seventy nine? Yeah. Uh, they were still using them. But you've still have you shot it? I think the the Confederate the Confederates used the Enfield right because they would buy it from the Britishers. That's correct. I think they did. Yeah, these are the same guns, the same guns that the Confederates uh, bought from the British. And uh, so, if anybody asks me about mine, I, I tell them a, a really good story about how my great great grandfather used it in the Civil War and uh, fought. Fought uh, General Grant, <laughs> all this other kind of. I, I can make up a really good story about that gun. I can hear the I can hear Georgia the Georgia in the background is making me uh, homesick. Are you you can hear your mother? Yeah, here I hear mom. I said? hear. Uh, no, I hear I hear the um, I, I said I hear Georgia in the background. The, the somebody frogs? opened the door. Yeah, the frogs. Oh, uh, yes, that was mom. She's ready to eat. She wanted to know if I'm still podcasting. I said, yes, I am. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, I wanted to ask you, I want to ask you about, That's uh, okay. I want to ask you about some, some of the anecdotes about how you got, how you were treated over there. I remember, I can remember uh, one about a kid that rode past you on a bike. You can tell us that one. Yeah, sure. Uh, in Afghanistan, the elders are esteemed. And so if you have a long beard and if your beard is gray, 
then you are at the top of the uh, the esteemed group. And since I was probably one of the oldest American soldiers in Afghanistan at the time, my gray my gray beard attracted a lot of attention from Afghanistan's Afghanis Afghans Afghans. There you go. Um, and my interpreter, who was born and raised in Afghanistan, still held on to the a lot of the Afghan customs. One day we were walking down what is known as Chicken Street. It's a major um, retail area in, in Kabul. It's called Chicken Street because somebody took a piece of plywood and wrote KFC on it and put it out in front of his uh, food establishment. And so the American, Americans saw that KFC and started calling the place Chicken Street. But anyway, we were walking down Chicken Street and Foz Lee, who was my interpreter, usually walked a step behind and a step to the right. Um, so I always knew where he was. But I was walking down the street and a kid of probably 14, 15 years old on a bicycle was coming towards me. Now I had just turned around and said something to Foz Lee and had turned my head back around to the front when the kid on the bicycle was right in my face and I had to do some fancy sidestepping to get out of his way. And as the bike passed me and got to where Foz Lee was, he grabbed the handlebar of the bike and slung it around in a half circle into the ditch. And then he started wailing on that that kid and there were cars going all up and down chicken street and they all stopped i'm talking hundreds of cars all stopped and started honking their horns and and everybody was screaming the top of their lungs out the window and i was getting nervous because i had no idea what was going on there was hundreds of Afghans hollering and honking their horns and Fosleys screaming in, in uh, Dari and wailing on this teenage kid. And finally I grabbed Fosle. I wanted to get out of there because I didn't know what was happening or what was fixing to happen. I grabbed Fosley and, and told him, come on, let's go. And, and I hurried him on out of there. And when we got to what I felt was a safer place, I asked him what in the world just happened. And he said, oh, I was just giving that, that uh, teenager uh, a lesson. And the people in the cars were encouraging me, saying hit him again and teach him a lesson and things like that. So everybody was apparently... Everyone in the cars were uh, encouraging him on, and Foz Lee was teaching him a lesson that apparently Foz Lee learned when he was a teenager. And uh, that lesson was that he gets out of 
my way. I don't get out of his way. We need to bring that back. I don't know if we ever had and it, but of we course, did it. America was very... Yeah. <laughs> I think like 150 years ago... I love that story. ...would have been, but I think we were left not quite prepared for this sort of a tribal justice environment. I yeah. keep losing Andy. I don't know what you're saying, Andy. I'm sorry. Oh, oh sorry. I mean, we, how, good, how, how well briefed were you before you got there that you were entering into a more medieval age? Um, well, it, it was... I, th I feel like our briefings were, were pretty spot on, but most of our briefings were not uh, so much about culture as they were about what to expect from the um, Taliban fighters and how they were going to act and react to certain ways that, to certain things that we did <clears throat> and how to spot uh how to spot a Taliban in amongst the um, just regular regular folks in town, uh, things like that. So although I was not really shocked by what I saw because I'm, I'm fairly well-traveled. I've been to third world, world countries before, but the fact that this country was a civilization four or five thousand years before the United States was a civilization. And then I got there and everybody's still living in mud huts. That was a real eye-opener for me. Um, I really thought that they ought to be a little further along the evolutionary scale of civilization than what they are. But I guess that's what happens when maybe you're they in, are and we we aren't when you're <laughs> maybe, but I'd much rather live in my house than their mud hut. But I, I that's what happens when you're living right in the crossroads of all of these invaders. When when you reflect on the uh, the fall then of the government in Afghanistan such as it was uh, how, how does it make you feel about the time that you spent there um, I I really disagree on uh, about how we pulled out of there but it's it's not for me to de decide policy so I don't uh, I tell you, let me tell you what I'm most proud of, what I did when I was there, what I'm most proud of. Before I left to go to Afghanistan, I was uh, taking college classes, and uh, I was taking government cla uh, college government classes, and I had just finished a class on several different kinds of governments and and what each one of them, the weakness and the strength of each kind of government. And I was invited to lunch one day to um, 
a compound which was the it was the University of Omaha, Nebraska, Afghan campus. Believe it or not. But the University of Nebraska Great football Omaha, team. Yeah. Well, not in Afghanistan. The Afghanistan campus didn't have much of a team. <laughs> but uh, I went to the campus there, and we had dinner. And when you have, when you eat at a at a Afghan dinner, the elders eat together, and they're the ones who talk, and everybody else at the table listens because they're supposed to be learning something from their elders. So I will sit, me being there with my gray beard, I was considered the elder. So I was sitting down at the end of the table talking to a fellow who worked. He was, Af, he was an Afghan who left Afghanistan back during the invasion of uh, the Soviet invasion and went to work for the University of Omaha, Nebraska. And then he was sent to Afghanistan to help write the Afghan constitution. So we were discussing the fact uh, or the facts of the uh, Afghan constitution, what it was going to look like and how, uh, uh, you know, how to make it better. Just, we were discussing government in general. And since I had just gotten through with that that uh, course, I, I was able to talk to him about different kinds of governments and the uh, positive and negative uh, of each type of government. And we talked for, I don't know, probably 45 minutes. And he had his, we were through eating by the time the, our conversation came to an end. And he had his elbows up on the table, leaned in towards me while we were talking. And we got through and he sat back and he said to me, he said, I don't know if I have time to get all of this into the Constitution, but you have really given me a lot to think about. And I was really proud of the fact that I was able to contribute. I, hopefully, I was able to contribute something to the con new Constitution of Afghanistan. They, I mean, it, it got... Uh, it's a bit bittersweet, though, I guess, because it got washed away, right? I mean, the government there now is the Taliban. Well, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Bittersweet, I, I bittersweet would be a good way to, to describe that. Um, I want to ask you about the change in the military over the past. So you've got... You have, what, 40-odd 40, 40 years of experience starting with Vietnam and ending in Afghanistan? Correct. It, well, that's uh, about 30 years. 
but yeah, 35. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, and you, yeah, go ahead. When I first went in, uh, a lot of the, when I first went in back in the uh, 70s, the, they had, the, the draft had just pretty much ended uh, in the early 70s. And I I was not in Vietnam. I was in during the Vietnam era, but I never went to Vietnam. But I knew a lot of the people who did go to Vietnam. One of the one of the uh, soldiers from that I knew from Vietnam. Uh, you actually knew, you being Joshua. Uh, actually knew he was your science teacher in um, middle school. His name was Jim, his name was James, and he was in Vietnam for a little over a year. He told me several of the stories about getting back from Vietnam and um, being in the airport in San Francisco and and being accosted by hippies and. Um, having to fight, actually physically fight his way out of the airport uh, through a bunch of hippies that were giving him and one of his buddies a hard time about being in the military. Um, the police actually had to intervene and they hauled the, the hippies away and told James and his buddy to change into civilian clothes and get out of there. So... It, it was a different time. I was in, in late 69, I was still in high school. I was in ROTC. And people did not appreciate anything military back then. It was so bad that on the days that we were supposed to wear our uniform in to ROTC in high school, I would wear civilian clothes to school, change before my uh, class start my RTC class started I would change go to class and then after class change back into civilian clothes because uh, even in high school in late 69 the other kids would harass the ROTC folks now fast forward 30 years when I got back from Afghanistan people were thanking me for my service buying me lunch, buying me drinks. Uh, everybody wanted to talk to somebody who had been there. They were all encouraging. And uh, so, that, yeah, it, the, the, the uh, way people, the, the way the, the civilian population changed was like from daylight to dark and I think that a lot of it had to do with the fact that it's all volunteer army now uh, when back then when they were being drafted the people who didn't want to go are the ones who uh, were very vocal about it and now that it's all volunteer, they have nothing to, to complain about. So it's okay to, it's okay to thank 
a veteran because uh, they volunteered to go. That's the biggest change in the last 30 years. How about the constitution of the, uh, the, the makeup of the military itself? Anything changed that? The makeup of the, of the uh, enlisted ranks, well, officer ranks too, for that matter. Uh, there's much higher percentage of females now than there were, and much more, a lot more females uh, doing jobs that were historically male jobs because they were um, they were frontline jobs. So that's the biggest change there. Did you? Did it have? Has it had any effect on like military readiness or fighting capability? That's a tough one. I, I don't believe so. Although, um, I didn't see it personally. I, I haven't seen. Now, I saw in Afghanistan where women were not allowed to go to certain places uh, or do certain things in country because of the culture the Afghan culture, they, they didn't, um, the culture didn't allow females to do certain things. So our army did not allow them to do certain things. And so most of the females that were in country in Afghanistan stayed on base. They stayed, they did uh, admin roles there, there were not very many of them out, out in the countryside. Um, but as far as readiness, I don't think that I'm qualified to, to speak on it. I'd have to do some research on that. Uh, this is not uh, any expertise that you have on the Ukraine war, but I am interested in... Uh, you know, we're, well, not you, but me anyway, we're, we're native Georgian and you've lived in Georgia longer than I have. And you lived in the South your whole life, I think. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested to know, um, since the big news is the, U is the Ukraine crisis or whatever you want to call it, what's the, uh, take the temperature of, of the people around you, because I think you, you're surrounded by. Well, what can we call them? Um, the re re Bible Belt types, you know, Republicans. Southern, huh? Southern, Southern conservative. Yeah. What Southern conservatives? Yeah. What's the What's the temperature? What's the feeling among them about this whole thing? Um, I'd say, for the most part, that they are anti-Soviet. That they are concerned about the humanitarian crisis that is developing with all of the refugees. They think that what Putin has done is, uh, is reckless, is uh, maniacal, and they are uh, disgusted with 
just with the fact that, that he would uh, invade a defenseless country because they don't see or don't understand or don't want to understand uh, why Putin is doing it, what, he's, what his end game is. You think you you differ from them in, in that you think he's being shrewd then. Is that fair? That's what he that's what he's trying to do. Now whether or not it works out for him, I don't know. Um, I think that he has taken uh, has gotten courage or is encouraged by the fact that we didn't stand by our allies in Afghanistan. He doesn't think that the United States is really has the political will to do anything to stop him. And I'm not sure that he's wrong. I guess we'll find out if he decides to go a little bit further. Uh, if, he, if he goes a little further and, and goes into a NATO country, uh, I am very interested to find out what kind of backbone the United States has, whether or not they'll uh, do something to stop it. I, I think I would bet every I, I would bet just about everything I've got that he's going to stop with Ukraine because they're a non-NATO country. But uh, I mean, I I think he's just being shrewd. He's he's done he's done his game theory. Uh, figured out he can he can take this and um, he's going to suffer maximum Nobody's pain. But stop him. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm not sure how much uh, these the sanctions are going to to do. Uh, I'm interested to find that out too. They're they're putting sanctions on all of the folks that surround him, and so we're going to find out how much political power he has within his own country so i'm interested to find that out too yeah um i mean i i'm no expert but i think that the the well i i know for sure that the the older generation is is uh in favor of what he's doing and um right the they're 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 fully capable of of um living through tough times because they've done it before but uh yeah i don't know about his, the younger generation of computer developers living in moscow or whatever that i'm sure there's a quite a few of them who are uh probably going to immigrate anyway uh by, by the time this comes out maybe it'll be a totally different story he will he will have either completely crushed the ukrainian resistance or i don't know it may be a stalemate for a long time but uh I, I think that that by the time, oh, I I think that if if it looks like he's stalling, he's going to have to ratchet up the, the, uh, the violence because losing is not a political option. Right. I I'll agree with that. Yeah. Thanks for coming. I want to do this again and cover some more stuff, but we'll do it down the line in the future. Okay. So thank you. All right. You just tell me when. It was fun. <laughs>